I had this great opportunity for something that I would rather be doing. I did not quit chiropractic. That is still what I want to be a part of. I quit chiro school because my girlfriend got a great opportunity and I got to save $60,000 by going somewhere and advancing my career in ways that I thought were more helpful. Exploring Chiropractic episode 55, Changing Course with Geronimo Bejarano. Welcome back to another episode of Exploring Chiropractic. I am your host, Dr. Nathan Cashin, and my guest today is Geronimo Bejarano, former chiropractic student at Palmer College of Chiropractic, Florida, whose recent tweet storm went viral. I came across it because I follow a lot of musculoskeletal clinicians, and it was retweeted uh, many, many times with lots of commentary, and I, I read through the whole thing and was struck by a couple of things, one that I... Uh, identified with many parts of the experience, but also had quite the opposite experience in some respects. And so I was uh, interested in having Geronimo on the show today to talk about his experience in chiropractic school, um, the disillusionment that occurred during the first couple of years, in fact, the first day of school, and what he perhaps wish he's, he had said or, or would have changed, and the feedback that he got on his Twitter thread by many different people, and his plans for the future, how he plans to continue in musculoskeletal care, in research, pursuing a master's and a PhD. How are you doing today? I'm doing I'm doing well. Yeah, thank you for inviting me, and uh, I'm excited to kind of talk about it and what I wish I would have said and the different things of before I knew it was about to about to go very viral on Twitter, or at least viral for for our profession's sake. Yeah, certainly. I mean, relatively, I'm looking at it now, 150 retweets, over 50 quote tweets, over 1,000 likes on the original tweet. So uh, certainly a lot to unpack there and talk about. Really looking forward to getting to that. I always like to start, though, getting to know you a little bit. When you were young, a little boy in Colombia, maybe, just about moving to the U.S., what did you want to be when you grew up? Soccer player. I mean, you know, to not to not hit the stereotype, but a little boy in Colombia is just soccer was my whole life, and I mean it still is. But I just want I, I was good enough to to play in college, but not good enough to uh, move on past that. Yeah, it's a GoPro. Yeah, I remember it was probably about oh sixth grade or something like that. First day of school in middle school, and I'm getting dressed, and mom's like, uh what are you doing? Are you sure you don't want to wear something else? I had my team soccer jersey and everything, right. like even my soccer shorts on. Cause like, no, I want to, first day of school. I want to represent what I'm all about. Right. <laughs> yep. No, a hundred percent. I was the same way. I, my mom says that the most she's ever seen me cry has always been about soccer games and not even my oh, own. Just kidding. like I was a big Barcelona fan growing up. So just they would lose in champions leagues in third grade. Me would just Balling, crying. <laughs> so you played, imagine, throughout high school. Um, you were quite athletic. Is that how you got introduced to chiropractic in the first place? Not really. So I was lucky to never have been injured, um, at least not any sort of uh, injury that would make me go seek health care. Like I had the ankle sprains and stuff like that but nothing um of like tearing a muscle or a ligament or anything like that so i actually had never been to a chiro or a pt uh being treated 
uh, that's still relatively um, is is true. Like I, I worked for Cairo, so I would get adjusted, and I all of those things um, post uh, undergrad. But I have never actually been sought healthcare for MSK conditions. So you went to a school, you did exercise science, is that right? Yeah. So I went to UCF, um, University of Central Florida, and I did my undergrad in exercise science. And after that is kind of when I got introduced to Cairo and PT. And What was your original plan doing exercise science? Uh, to be honest with you, I was 18 years old and the only thing I knew was sports. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I was like, oh, let me try this. And and then I kind of got introduced to you can be either an athletic trainer or a PT at the time was the two main things, especially because there's a PT school on UCF's campus. So they have like an okay. undergraduate AP, like a uh, PT association. Um, and what I didn't know, I graduated at 21. So I did it in four years, uh, my undergrad at 21. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So, so I did, decided to not immediately apply to any grad, like grad program. And I worked for two years. And is that when you started working with a chiropractor? Right. So I would go in on uh, all of the different hiring websites, essentially, and would put in either rehab assistant or anything like that. Um, and I got hired by as a chiro assistant by a chiropractor. And that walking in for my interview was probably the first time that I got introduced to chiropractic. Isn't that crazy? You know, you think most people at least have heard of it. Um I'm curious, did that, do you think that had anything with your background coming from Columbia? I mean, you, you moved to the States when you were five. Is, is chiropractic even recognized in Columbia? I'm not actually not sure legally if it's recognized in Columbia, but we are currently, I'm currently looking at a project looking at access to care in Columbia for MSK. Uh-huh. And there is a, a certain amount of PTs, about 60,000 PTs in all of Columbia, um, but it is a problem just in PT not having enough. So I imagine chiropractic is even less because there's no schools, obviously, yeah. in Columbia. So I would imagine it's an even bigger problem, but I'm not sure legally if it is or okay. it's not. So I was introduced to chiropractic through my parents. So I was just curious whether you, your parents knew about it or it just wasn't something uh, that ever came up for you. Not really. And I think that has shaped a little bit of my my view on healthcare is just because we moved here and my parents have never really been ones to seek healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is probably why I wasn't introduced to any of it. Um, like my parents would do their annual visits and my mom is very big on going to the dentist every like four to six months, like hounds me for that still. <laughs> um but besides that, uh, luckily, I was very healthy growing up, and so were my parents. Um, so I think that kind of shapes my my vision on what healthcare should kind of look like, for most people at least. So you become a chiropractic assistant not knowing really anything of the profession. Uh, you did some rehab. Were you doing passive modalities or more rehab yeah, so- exercise stuff? So uh, I did not know anything about it when I when I started there. Um, so complete blank say anything that I was told, I believe, because why not? Um, the chiropractor that I worked for was the type of chiropractor that would do long term care plans on the first day. So your your uh, your day one, day twos, you come in, you get a, you get a, an X-ray. Um, we kind of show or the doctor shows you the X-ray tells you all of the things that 
are potentially supposedly wrong on the x-ray and here's a 32 visit care plan over three months um and that's all i knew like i i had no reason to to think that that is was wrong or, or harmful um my job was essentially once the people uh were started on the care plan it looked like uh i would put them on stim we had a spinal decompression machine we had a uh, class five laser, K laser. Um, and so for the first month, you'd come in three times a week and I would do all three, all three of those things to you. And then okay. I would, you would go in and get adjusted. And then going into the second and third months is when I would start doing some more active care with you. And we would kind of do a little less. You would still do decompression or laser, but we would like get rid of the stim. And then in those 10 minutes that you would usually be on stim, we would be doing some sort of active rehab. What did that look like? What type of active rehab were you doing? So I think this is another thing that really shaped um, why I got so involved into research is because I didn't really have a lot of mentorship onto what that looked like. Um, and I'm the type that I really wanted I, I really wanted to be good at my job. So I mm -hmm. went and started reading everything that I could get my hands on at first. Um, so quite literally, the rehab looked like whatever book I was reading at that time. So if you would have got me at my McKenzie stage, it would look like a lot what McKenzie would look like. Uh, bad, you know, uh, I, if anybody that actually has taken a, enough MDT courses would, will tell you that it probably didn't look like actual McKenzie, but <laughs> right. you know, enough to like, I read a couple of the books and same with like McGill or, and then Craig Liebenson's Rehab of the Spine second edition. Like it just kind of depended on what I was reading that time. That's what my patients or our were these getting. books that were recommended to you by someone or were you just going on Amazon and typing in rehab and finding stuff? So I went on Google and started finding like rehab for low back pain rehab. It, it was mostly low back pain and, and some neck pain that we were seeing almost all of it. Very rarely were we getting any type of extremity pain. Um, and there was no, that was the one thing. It was all MSK. We weren't treating anything that wasn't msk related um and so i would google low back pain rehab exercises and i would kind of chase down wherever citation that blog or whatever it was that and somehow those led me either to facebook groups to the cairo facebook groups whether it was ftca or or evidence-based chiropractic network and i was involved in a lot of those um pretty heavily involved um, and commenting and, and even, uh, at my, when I got to Palmer, um, I went to their, to their clubs. Um, and so those kind of led me, I would just go and you could search on the Facebook groups, uh, like a question. And I would go see, even if it was like three years ago, somebody asked that question and I would go mm -hmm. and read those books. So you mean you actually use the search function in a Facebook group <laughs> instead yeah. of asking the question for the hundredth time? <laughs> well, I, I think for me, it was like, I was be prior to school. A lot of people, because just students in general, but even more so, I haven't even entered school yet. They were very nice to me, very understanding, um, and so I saw the same questions continue to be asked before I even asked. Like I was more of a lurker for the first couple of months than anything else, sure. and then I started seeing. I was like, oh, let me just go look um, and see what I find, and that's how I kind of 
noticed how to be a, a good uh, Facebook member, Facebook group member. Yeah. <laughs> but even you, you say you're reading blogs about rehab and you're, you're going to the references and searching those out. I mean, even that is a step beyond what most people will do. Is that something you learned in your exercise science program? Yeah, I would say, so we had to do a capstone project. So now that I have actually been a part of quote unquote real research, I understand that the capstone project was undergrad level capstone, like, um, but it allowed me to have the ability of critical thinking and knowing how to go look for things um, and allowed me to know that I'm supposed to look beyond Wikipedia or blogs. Um, at the time, I definitely like I've definitely learned a lot more about research in the last four four or five years than I did at the time, obviously, like anything else. Right. Um, with experience, you kind of get better at certain things. Um but at the time, I at least knew that much. My undergrad had told me that you need to go beyond blogs and Wikipedia. Yeah, that's great. I want to talk a little bit more about your uh, your approach to reading research and, and all of that. But you spent two years as a chiropractic assistant reading a lot. All of the, I mean, you've said in, in other interviews you've done, you know, read Greg Cook. Uh, at that time, were you reading Greg Lehman's blog? Stuff yes. about pen science already. And so, yeah, so you had been exposed to a lot. Um, when did you decide to go to chiropractic school? Uh, when I realized that there was a problem with the system, that there was not a lot of jobs that allowed you to treat how maybe I thought, even at the time, how I thought we should be able to treat some of this stuff. Um, or have some of the stuff. a chiropractic assistant or rehab specialist you want I, so I wanted to I wanted to go to grad school anyways so it was either PT or Cairo for me um, and the reason that I chose Cairo was because they it seemed like a better opportunity for me to be able to open up and opening up meant that I got to treat how I wanted to treat very 22 year old I could do this mentality uh, at the time. Uh, but that is the reason that I chose Cairo over PT was because I at least knew that there was a lot of constraints in the system and PT from my understanding had a lot more barriers, uh, to access than Cairo's. It's interesting that you had that perception because I think I did too. I spent probably 10 years from the side, the time I decided, yeah, I want to do chiropractic, but not really knowing the path. It was probably 10 years by the time I actually started the program. And certainly when I was starting, it was true that PTs were not portal of entry. Um, you know, you had to have a referral, but by the time I actually started the program, that wasn't true anymore. The DPT requirement was pretty much in stone, you know? And so I'm curious if that, where that perception came from, um, by the time you started, PT was getting to be in most States, at least was pretty open access. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I'm curious why you had that perception. So I still don't really quite understand it, to be honest with you. Like I, I've been told that and I continue, I still get told that, uh, PTs in a lot of States, I know it's different, but just like you said, I know a lot of PTs that have been able to be open up in portal entry, even here in Florida. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I'm not sure how many states that is true for. I've never really lo looked into it because after I went to Cairo school, like 
whether PTs were portal of entry or not really wasn't affecting me at all. But I have the reason that I thought that was because that's what I was told either in the Facebook groups or by the people that I was meeting in person. Recruiters for schools. Exactly. Yeah. So when I would go and like, look at what schools I wanted to go to, um, that's what I was being told. I still think that that is relatively true, but that just really depends on the state. It seems to be very state dependent. Yeah, certainly depends on the state and, and also different countries have different um, regulations on that. What led you to Palmer, Florida? You're already in Florida, just yeah, close so, to school you could pick. I mean, how much time did you spend looking at different campuses I, and programs? A lot of time. Um, I, To be honest, the only other school that I even thought about was CMCC. And the only reason that I thought about CMCC was because Greg Lehman went there. And somehow I was mm-hmm. like, if Greg Lehman is this good, it must be because he went to CMCC, <laughs> which is funny enough because he ended up going back to school and being a becoming a PT and all that stuff. But that was the only other school I even considered. Uh, I didn't really want to leave Florida. Uh, the Where the Cairo schools are wasn't something that I, I've never really wanted to live elsewhere. And where they were at the time, I wasn't really ready to leave my friends. And I was living in UCF in an Orlando area. So the Palmer, Florida was only about 45 minute drive. So I could even stay in Orlando, which is what I ended up doing. I made mm-hmm. the drive every day to school. So I didn't have to move. I didn't have to, and nothing had to change in my life, essentially going to Palmer, Florida, besides starting school. Palmer, Florida was new when the time I was making the decision to go and seemed like they had a lot of great things to offer. At least what the recruiters were telling me was, you know, a, a different approach to anatomy where they did, um, full sections rather than systems. They had a laptop for every student and everything was going digital at the time. <laughs> I did not get a laptop. I'll tell you, <laughs> you that get a laptop. Did not I'm get imagining a laptop. they changed that. I think there's two other schools now, two other chiropractic schools in Florida. Yeah. So national has a St. Pete uh, campus, which is uh, over on the West side. Um, they are super small in here, here. So I, from my understanding, like the class sizes are like 10 to 15 people, which I is- I rarely hear about National Florida. <laughs> like yes, just it's in St. Pete. Hardly and then, ever. Yes, exa- same. I don't even actually know anybody that's gone there and I've lived in Florida my whole life. And Kaiser opened up actually in my hometown of Palm Beach. But when I was applying, they were not yet accredited. Uh-huh. And I wasn't ready to, to make that leap without knowing that they were going yeah, to be accredited. That that is a, yeah, I don't know. So I, I did not go to there. But that that is, I think, had I changed schools, that would have been where I would have gone, uh, especially because I would have been able to live at home. So that saves you rent money. Right. And Kaiser apparently is a very evidence-based. I mean, it's within a university. Yep. Um, and, but again, small cohort. They only just uh, graduated their first class, maybe last year, I want to say. Um. So tell me about going to Palmer, Florida. I mean, what was your experience? And I think this kind of leads us into some some early parts of the Twitter thread. But uh, those early classes, um, were you pretty content at first or, or did the disillusionment start right away? I knew what I was getting myself into because I had been part of the Facebook group. So I did not know anything about some of the more philosophical philosophy of chiropractic unless it was for the Facebook group, because even my boss wasn't really ever using that language. Mm. Uh, therefore I didn't really under like, 
I hadn't been exposed to that except for in the Facebook group. And I was like, okay, so this is what I'm going to have to deal with. But look at all of these people that have been able to move past this. And so like that didn't uh, turn me off from the profession. Uh, So when I, I'd already done a lot, a lot of reading by the time I was in at Palmer. So I, the first day that I walked into our first class, the president of Palmer kind of comes and gives the the incoming class a little bit of a speech or a welcome and then does a Q&A. And I don't think that he was ready for me to ask this question, but I had already known about the uh, the International Cairo Education Agreement, which had been signed by all of the international schools, including CMCC, but on, the only American school at the time that had signed it. And I think Parker might have signed it now, but at the time it was only Bridgeport. And basically it's five. We're going to, we're going to teach biopsychosocial. Like it's a lot of like pain is more complicated than, than what we used to think It's the first four. And then the fifth one is we're only going to teach philosophy as history because there's no biological mm-hmm. possibility of it. And Palmer hadn't signed it. Though Palmer also had not signed the, the ACA's choosing wisely. So I raised my hand and I asked, and he was definitely not expecting that. Uh, And now that I think about it, I probably shouldn't have done that. But anyways, he told me that he didn't (laughs) want to, he didn't like to sign those things because he didn't like to take a stand. Uh, Hmm. And now, again, now being older, I understand politics because at the end of the day, it's politics. At the end of the day, Palmer and all of the chiropractic schools in America, at least, are private institutions where they are competing with each other, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the end of the day, it is the students coming to Palmer and paying them that makes them their money, uh, which I think is one of the problems that is they try to, they care maybe a little too much about butts and seats yep. and what could get the most amount of people there, which has led to a lot of problems like life almost lost their accreditation now like three times because they couldn't pass the uh, 70% of the people that start that first quarter need to graduate between like four years or whatever. Like they give you a little more than it takes. Uh, mm-hmm. They weren't, they are making like 65% of the people uh, because they were accepting way too many people that would be like, I don't want to do this anymore and leave. And right. so that I think is a, a problem that, it's, it's a system again. It's a system of too many private institutions. And their uh, their revenue is pretty dependent on, um, on, on tuition rather than having... I mean, some of these schools have pretty large endowments, um, but many of them are, are pretty reliant on uh, tuition to be able to pay their staff and faculty. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I most noticed that was different is like for any type of undergrad or graduate program, you kind of go on U.S. news and you get like the top 100 public health schools. Right. And it's like very they have a a method for it. You can't do that for chiropractic. And so they don't have to care so much about uh, what do your graduate what are your graduates making uh, one year out of graduation, five years out of graduation, how many of them passed the boarding? Like these are all questions that are usually pop up super high for any law school, medical school, any type of program. Like that is questions that that's the first thing you see on all of these programs front page. Cairo schools don't really have to do that because there is no other kind of option. Like they're not, everybody's kind of doing the same thing. It didn't matter mm-hmm. whether you go went to Western States, Palmer, Parker, it doesn't really matter 
there is no better pay coming out of new grad. Like obviously you set yourself up for that, but it's not like, Oh, somebody that went to Harvard and somewhere went to UCF for law school. There is a a different level of pay coming out. Even though probably four of the schools claim to be the Harvard of chiropractic. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But nobody's claiming to be the Stanford or the, (laughs) all they think about is the Harvard. Okay. So, President was, you know, not terribly impressive on that first day or, or, you know, was trying to be diplomatic and that may have come off um, in the wrong way to you. What about the basic science courses, those early courses in the first year? So I thought, I actually thought the basic science courses were, were very good. Um, I I would say that that is the best thing that, that Cairo has really done, at least for Palmer, Florida. We had MDs teaching the anatomy courses, the uh, histology, biology, biochem, all of those were taught pretty well, or as well as I could know, since I didn't know any of that stuff, like whatever they were teaching, I believe, and I don't have any reason not to. Um, my problem was when you got outside of the the sciences, the, the basic sciences, that really started to, things really started to crumble for me while I was there. And they hit you pretty hard at Palmer the first three quarters. You spend more time in philosophy classes than any other class besides anatomy. Uh, I remember from Palmer Davenport uh, not long ago that there was a proposal to to get rid of basic science courses for the first, I want to say, 12 weeks. They were saying, we want to do just philosophy for the first 12 weeks. I don't think that ever came to pass, but I I actually think the opposite happened at Palmer Davenport from what uh, my understanding is. And this might be because they have the research program there. uh, And Christine Gertz was there for about a decade and now she's at Duke. Maybe I'm confused. Maybe it was life. I might be confusing life. That might've been life. It might've been life that was saying they're going to get rid of. Yeah. uh, Now it's the opposite. Now Palmer Davenport uh, is actually moving to philosophy is going to be taught as history and not as as what is currently taught as philosophy. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in your in your Twitter thread that you had uh, three semesters of philosophy um, but and two semesters of line drawing on x-rays, but then only one class each for public health or research methods. Right. So what happened was we did three semesters of philosophy. So we do quarters. So they're three quarters. So it's 10 weeks ends up being almost half a year or nine months. Uh, so what, what happened is we do philosophy for three quarters. And we are correct in saying that we divide it into sections, uh, like anatomy. Uh, so what happens is like the first quarter you do your spinal anatomy and everything spinal related. So like our technique classes was spinal, mm-hmm. our philosophy had to do with that region of the spine. Uh, and when you do your, ex- like your extremity anatomy, you're doing your extremity technique, you're doing everything. It, it all lines up in that quarter that you're learning essentially that same region. So it wasn't until fifth quarter that we got our fit first public health class and I didn't, I hadn't even thought about it. Actually, I had this conversation with Christine Gertz and she's like, how many public health classes are, are still being taught there? And one, 
one for one quarter and it's about two hours long. And another problem that I had was the research method that I mentioned on the Twitter that was the research methods class. We had it only one of them for two hours the first quarter. And I, I love the professor. Like he's somebody that I, I, I became my friend while I was there, but he was a nurse and then became a chiropractor. Mm-hmm. That he had no uh, formal education in order to be able to teach a research methods class. Mm-hmm. And let's clarify what you're talking about with research methods. Um, in my program at Western States, we had multiple courses that were called evidence-informed practice. And they were focused on evaluating. We, we touched on the different types of research and some of the methods that could be done, but it was really focused on evaluating the research and applying it to clinical practice. Now, are, are you talking about something more like that, or are you talking about a course specifically dedicated to how to do research? So that that is actually one thing that I I hope does change because I hope I hope it is more like what you're saying at Palmer, Florida. We did get that right. So we obviously you start off with the first class of like the hierarchies, right? Like what is a systematic review and what is a case study and all of that. But we actually got pretty into like ANOVAs and MANCOVAs and all okay. of these different things that you don't need to know unless you're conducting research. So a lot of the statistics stuff. Right. So we didn't have to actually perform statistics, but you had to know why an ANOVA, why an ANCOVA. And I'm just, now that I am pretty well read and and understand statistics and how to do some basic statistics. Like I'm definitely not a a statistician, but at least I know what to look for. As a clinician, you don't need to know that stuff. And you definitely don't need to know it as a first quarter student. And I think that that turns a lot of people off into research because they're like, oh, math, all of those things. And yes, there's a little bit of of math and statistics that you might need to know as a clinician to help you kind of evaluate research, but it's not a lot. And I think it would we would get more people really interested if we started with, ironically enough, the philosophy of science and why science is important and why it could shape your clinical practice. If we started with that and maybe some of the the big papers that have kind of shaped musculoskeletal care or chiropractic care. And I think that would, the students would be more interested. And then maybe eventually you could, you could offer like some sort of elective of Inovas and Mancovas and all these different things. Mm -hmm. But when you start off with that, like people are not going to care. So that I think was a a major problem. Was the evidence kind of intertwined into many of the other classes? You know, again, just my experience, uh, a lot of the courses we had, we, you know, we would go into the research to talk about uh, treatments or, clinical pathways and that type of stuff. Uh, are you saying that research just wasn't part of the curriculum that you only had that one course? So, so we only had that one course, but I would say most of my classes had citations on the PowerPoints. The problem I think with that is that just like everybody that's read research knows you can go and find any case study to, sure to say whatever you want or to, to talk about whatever you want. And some of that research was actually conducted by my teachers at the time. And funny enough, because I was relatively well-read in the, in the MSK literature, I knew the letters to the editors that had come to their publications. And I was like, you need to acknowledge the fact that, let's say Pierre Cote wrote a letter to the editor about pregnancy uh, systematic review and you're 
you're teaching the pregnancy class and you're using things that Pierre Cote very clearly showed that your systematic review was very terribly done, but you're still teaching that. You need to acknowledge that the the one of the main re, you know chiropractic researchers in North America took his time out to to write a response to your systematic review because it was not done correctly. And that's, I think, was the main problem is that case studies were were being shown or were being referenced. A lot of textbooks, too. A lot of textbooks mm. were being referenced. And so when you get to that stage, you can say whatever you want and still call it evidence-based, supposedly, in my so opinion. So not a lot of acknowledgement of the limitations uh, of the quality and and even just what type of study it might have been. Right. I think... Just as humans, one of our biggest problems is that we dichotomize continuous variables. So it was a lot of this works or this doesn't work. And most things aren't that black and white. So it was a lot like manipulation does this. And there's a lot of nuance to that, right? Like as a clinician, you know, like things don't just work or don't work. They work on a scale. Uh, And a lot of my schooling was that like a lot of this works, this word, like, what does that mean like to, for everybody at, at what stage how much like how much do i have to give like none of that nuance was kind of being discussed it was just like you can do this with your hands interesting it sounds similar to the cairo haters on twitter that say there's no evidence for chiropractic right but this is the other side of that so you get right. through the first year or so of basic sciences and and you get closer and you start the clinic part of schooling and on your Twitter thread, you say, once you got there, you realized really how doomed American Cairo actually was. What did you mean by that? So I think what my problem is the system that we currently uh, are involved in. And while I say this, I what I would have added to that thread is that I know a lot of very, very good chiropractors. I am friends with a lot of them. I look up to a lot of them. I consider a lot of them my mentors. Uh, a lot of them have taught me a a lot about what what can be done in chiropractic uh, or just in musculoskeletal care in general. And a lot of people also, I would not consider doing appropriate care. And I understand why that was when when I entered clinic and saw what we were being asked to do and what care looked like in somewhere where we didn't we shouldn't have had any constraints this isn't when you're out trying to make a living right this isn't when you're trying to start your own business that the, the, those constraints weren't there this is you're teaching at a at a teaching clinic on a Cairo campus you should be able to do guideline concordant care here because it You're not paying the students. They're paying you, Mm -hmm. if anything. Mm -hmm. So those constraints weren't there. And what was happening is you were getting passed down patients. Patients were coming in for their weekly adjustments for years upon years. And the idea of self-management was very, very not even discussed. Uh, we do now have a rehab clinic, which the rehab clinician in there is is good, so he he can help you. But you have to go and seek him out. You don't. If you didn't already uh, enjoy active rehab, you could never ever see the active rehab. And if you didn't go out of your way to to do that, right? And and that's what mm-hmm. we know is like if you don't force this upon. Uh, students, why would they go seek out? They have so many other things to do 
uh, so many other commitments uh, that you have to do, whether it's the amount of extras you have to take or the amount of patients that you have to see. Like, why would I try to go above and beyond, right, if you're not making it easy for me? And that's what we were seeing a lot. And that is a lot of the messages that I got after making that Twitter thread. One of them from my classmates was, I see exactly what you're saying and I complete with you. And the thing that I feel most terribly about is that I don't know how I would even go about self getting somebody to self-manage because we haven't been taught that. Mm. And so that I think is my big problem is that even if somebody says, Oh, there's a problem here, we haven't been taught how to do better. And that was one of the main problems that, that I was getting a lot of messages from students. Like you're right. Like if I had only gotten what I got from school, I wouldn't know what to do. And some people have, and I think that when you're paying this much money, the school should be able to, to offer you a little more, than that you shouldn't be able to feel like you don't even know what to do even if you wanted to do the correct quote-unquote correct thing it's interesting because i have similar experiences um and i think we should talk about the the generalizability of this uh we went to very different schools um a lot of what you've shared resonates with me but then some things i had completely the opposite experience we'll touch on that when we talk about x-rays um but you know certainly there were students who excelled in clinic who had patients coming to them you know back to back uh my perception of that is a lot of it was like you mentioned patients passed down to them from you know from students that came before or friends other students in their classes who they kind of arranged with to come and and to get their numbers um a lot of us i include myself really struggled at bringing in patients uh, my recollection is that we were limited and that we can just go out into the community and kind of advertise our services uh, unless we had personal connections that we would bring in and so there there seemed to be uh, a lot of um as you're saying, you you had to do certain things uh, to bring patients in, which uh, you may not have known how to do. Similar to as you're saying, like providing active rehab was not something inherent in the system um, unless you already had that knowledge on how to do that. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what, what we are still kind of doing. We are allowed to go and seek patients like we could go to uh sporting events and kind of have our mm -hmm. we get business cards when we enter clinic uh obviously you have to present yourself as a student and it's a student clinic and, and you you can't yep. impersonate a doctor obviously but you, we're allowed to seek patients but the reality i think is that that is really hard when you're also seeing your first patient ever like there is a lot of sure. of of learning curve that you already have to do because most people haven't uh, ever actually seen anybody besides their friends in, in all of the classes that we had to take. Right. So like all the first two years you were just doing mock uh, clinic, you know, mock clinic essentially with, with your, with your classmates. It's a lot easier when you've known the person two years and you know, nothing's wrong with them. And mm -hmm. no matter how many, you know, case studies you go through in your head about like, well, what should I do here? What should I do here? It's not like seeing somebody, that is coming into pain with you and it's terrifying. So I would say that most of the clinic time is spent on that. We're just trying not to, 
to screw it all up with a, a real mm-hmm. patient, I guess. Uh, so most of the people that do come in to, to the student clinic is uh, the people that receive free or reduced care because they're government employees or they're friends of or family members of the students and then plus the students as well. I mentioned that another aspect that I had a very different experience was x-rays. So you, you said that you guys had requirements to have at least 20 x-rays in order to graduate. Yes. So this is funny enough because this has been one of the ones that have been most con- quote unquote controversial. I have had people tell me that I thought from my understanding, I thought this was a American accreditation thing that you needed to have a certain amount of uh manipulation done before in order to apply for graduation and a certain amount of x-rays and a certain amount of uh, new patients uh, that you'd seen or done an assessment on in order to graduate. That was my understanding of it. I have been told differently and I've also been told the same at different schools. So I I have a a buddy that graduated from Logan and he did not have to do that in order to graduate. Uh, He's like, I I only took one x-ray and the year and a half that I was in clinic, I also had somebody reach out to me from Logan and tell me that they had a 20 x-ray requirement as well. And, I, just, and were they I, in the program at a similar time? Yeah. I mean, we're talking like a three or four year difference here. Uh, and I mean, you said you've been out, what, 10 years now? Uh, five. Five, five years? years. I, how so was it over there? When I started, there were requirements for numbers. You had to have, you know, 200 patient visits, so many of those had to be complex cases. Uh, You had to perhaps have a certain number of x-rays. Now, by the time I was finishing clinic, it changed from a numbers-based system to a competency-based system in which your attending clinician or supervising clinician would simply say, yes, this student is now competent in this aspect of care. And so things changed within a fairly short period of time. Uh, in fact, there were other things. I don't know if you had OSCEs, this um, this clinical exam yep. that the class, the semester, there were the quarter before me, or at least the, the class admitted before me, it might've been two quarters, had to take that exam. Um, the quarters after me had a different type of assessment. We had nothing. My quarter just completely skipped over the clinical competency evaluation. And it was somewhat confusing and concerning to me at the time. Um, but I will say that with with x-ray, I cannot recall ever taking an ex- actual x-ray, other than perhaps on a mannequin in an x-ray lab. But I certainly didn't have to take x-rays um, myself. And I maybe ordered one. Uh, for a patient who had a traumatic fall. Uh, and so that that was a very different experience for me. That's actually why I ended up choosing. So we we do like a lottery sort of system, how you get into what clinician you do for your clinic mm-hmm. or your mod is what we call it at Palmer. And the reason that I chose my clinician is because it was in the mod that is uh, has a couple of clinicians that are upper cervical based. Mm-hmm. And because they're upper cervical based, they believe that they need to do x-rays on everybody that walks in in order to know where to adjust. Uh, so because of that, I was I chose that mod because at the time I wanted to do the VA uh, internship or preceptor. And 
that meant that I got to leave three months or a quarter earlier. So three months earlier. And that meant that I still had to do the 20 x-rays in even a shorter amount of time. And a lot of the people told me that that was the hardest number to hit. So if I could be in the upper cervical mod, I knew that I could sit in on a lot of x-rays because you're allowed to like bring two or three people next to you. And that accounts sure. for all the x-ray counts for, uh, for all of the students there that are, that are looking at it. So that's actually what ended up making me choose that, that clinic mod. That's all I cared about. It's like, how was the fastest way for me to get out? To getting your numbers. Yeah. Exactly. What's some other feedback you've gotten on this Twitter thread? Because again, I, as I've said, um, hundreds of retweets, thousands of likes. Uh, I've I've read through a lot of this and you've gotten comments from, you know, some really well-known people. Um, Peter O'Sullivan, uh, I think uh, even Greg Kochuk <laughs> replied here. Um, maybe Chad Cook and others. Yeah, What's Jan. been some of the feedback? I think everybody understands that this is not a chiropractic soul problem. It is a system problem that we are not allowing the majority of schools to put out Con, student clinicians or clinicians at the time that are prepared to treat based on guideline coordinates are the most recent evidence. That does not mean that there are not phenomenal clinicians out there, right? The problem, I think, is that when you are graduating 250 people, how many of them do you expect to go home and read papers? How many of them do, do mm. you expect to, to join these Facebook groups? How many, of, like, how many of them do you expect to do these things that are honestly time-consuming outside of the 40 hours of of school that you're already putting in. And that I think is my problem. And I think I maybe didn't word that correctly, but, and a lot of people, the, the, the feedback that I've gotten that are mad at me, some of the people that are saying that I'm trying to burn the profession down, I kind of laugh at because I'm, I'm literally on projects that hopefully will be published in the next year that all say, chiropractors should probably be port of entry in a hospital system so that we can reduce opioids and imaging. And all of these things are, I do believe that can happen. My issue is whether it, I'm not pro or against the profession. I'm pro against people. And I think the problem with the chiropractic right now is the standardizing of schools and of care. If I go to a chiropractor, I have absolutely no idea what's what I'm about to get out. And I think that is also has to do with because we haven't standardized schools. Mm. And when it's so that when people are like, oh, it's because you went to Palmer, Palmer isn't the most uh, evidence based, but it's also not the worst. Right. So like we have people coming from Sherman, who is very philosophy to life, to Palmer, to all the way to, we'll say, uh, UWS or uh, LACC or whatever it's called now is Southern California. Uh, that that should be something that we should also worry about, right? It's not being anti-chiropractic. It's wanting the profession to to live up to what it can be. And, and what do you say to those who suggest that you should have continued to fix the problem from inside? I, t I would say that I did, I feel like I could have done more outside of it. And that is why I left. I still am completely in love with MSK care. I think that Kairos can do a big job of being able to help, but I think we are shooting ourselves in the foot over and over again, and that is going to hurt 
Cairo by by not airing our dirty laundry, by not trying to fix our dirty laundry, is going to hurt Cairo even more. So if we continue to open up more schools and charge more money and the pay continues to decrease for for jobs, for people that don't want to open up, because that, that shouldn't be fair either. Every single person that goes to school needs to open up their own clinic or else they can't make more than $50,000 a year, but have a $250,000, you know, debt. And you are creating a problem, right? So like, if you actually care about your profession, you need to fix this problem or else you're going to have way too many people for not enough jobs. And that is going to make people do more bad care or care that is potentially not helpful or harmful or cost-effective and eventually somebody is going to have a problem with that way beyond chiropractic that might actually harm uh, access to care, which is kind of what happened in Australia, right? We had too many chiros pushing on pediatric care. And for about a year and a half, Australian chiropractors were not allowed to see anybody under the age of 18. In other countries, chiros have lost their imaging rights, right? And so like these things can happen. And they can happen if we continue to have too many people go the opposite route. And if we don't put in a system that tries to minimize that, it's going to hurt the profession. And just sitting back and saying nothing, I don't think is is helpful to the profession. And it's definitely not helpful to patients. That does not mean that I don't think that there are great chiropractors, though. Some of the retweets have, uh, or some of the quotes have tried to say, you know, your thread is a reason to never go to a chiropractor, to never let them touch your neck. I think they're they're trying to project a little bit. But what are your thoughts on that? I realized that my thread was going to be a problem when I started getting all of the notifications and almost all of them had DPT in their name. And I was like, ah, this became a deep love PT versus Cairo problem. And I honestly, I work with Josh Satro. I'm on two papers with him. And he's the one that he's the PT that published the, that PTs essentially don't do guideline concordant care. And I've read that paper. I know what those numbers are like. PT does not, you know, don't throw stones from glass houses. <laughs> right. That is yeah, what yeah. I wanted to say to these people. And it's just like, this is not a Cairo soul problem. With me, this um, this letter that came from the American Council of Academic PT, in which they break down quite clearly some of the issues with the future of physical therapy based on the number of schools uh, that are being developed, the increasing cost of tuition, and the decreasing need for physical therapists. Right. So I, the reason I shared that with you is because of the numbers. So the the Bureau of Labor Statistics did this study. And the numbers are that if, if you have more than $120,000 of student loan debt for the current new grad PT pay, which is about $65,000 a year, it is, and I quote them, unsustainable for you to, it, it, the cost of school is too much for what you are being paid. I hate to break it to Cairo in America. Most, the average of Cairo uh, student loan debt is about $200,000. Mm-hmm. And the average new grad pay is lower than $65,000. At least for the first 
two or three years to be an associate, right? We're talking yeah. about getting a job, like yeah. not all of them, but the, we're talking about the average. There are some great jobs, especially if you get like into the VA or you get hired by somebody that, you know, really wants to, to help you out or anything like that. But the average is lower that that is something that we need to talk about for the exact same reasons that the APTA just put out. Right. Because if you are putting out too many people, with too high of student loan debt, you were it's borderline predatory and it's something that some somebody needs to mention. And I was surprised that they were quite clear and just laid the numbers out. I, I find it hard to imagine a chiropractic organization doing the same. Um, because like you say, and, and there are new programs coming up. You mentioned Kaiser. Uh, there are plans now for a chiropractic school in Kansas. The University of Pittsburgh is mm-hmm. fundraising to, to create a program yep. there. And I, you know, I'm a bit torn because I feel like with utilization rates, you know, below 15% and below 10% in many places and the prevalence of low back pain, I think there's plenty of need for chiropractors, but that's only if they're in a system where they're following guideline concordant care and they can have access to those patients in an ethical way. Right. And I think that they're, we're going to end up pushing away if we don't do something about it. And that's what I was trying to get into. It's like, it's not pushing somebody away from chiropractic care. It's giving informed consent. Uh, and it's also giving informed consent about chiropractic school. I wish somebody would have told me, I, I wouldn't have listened to 22 years old. I didn't know. I don't know what $250,000 of student loan debt is. Like, I still don't know that. And I'm 26. And it's just, it's very hard to grasp that number, especially when you don't have any debt. So I had no credit card debt. I had no undergrad student loan debt. Uh, It's very hard to grasp that number. I am lucky in the sense that I have a niche. I knew that I could do more in research. I knew that I could do more in academia. I made a lot of friends with some of the more well-known Kairos like Craig, uh, he got Craig Liebenson. He, he's always told me like, if you ever need anything, come out, we can, we can work something out here. Not a lot of people can say the same thing, right? Not a lot of people enjoy research and academia and stuff like that and have plan B's and plan C's. We need to help them too. Or at least we need to give them that informed, Hey, this is what it costs. This is what you should probably look at to what it's going to, co- uh, what you're going to get paid for the best couple of years. If you still want to do this, go for it. It seems to me like there's actually two parts to this thread. As I've as I've listened to you talk about it, as I've read through both your tweets and comments and the replies to it, and that is that there's a problem with the system, both the education system and the healthcare system that chiropractic is involved with. And there's a question of personal fit. You appear to have uh, a big interest in research, in public health, social determinants of health. Um, And it sounds like that is a better fit for you. And there's a problem with the education system. And I wonder if people are conflating those two things. Yeah, I, I definitely think they are. Uh, I And I will be completely honest with you. And it, it's funny because I made that thread, but I could have made that thread a year ago, a year and a half ago. Why did I choose that day to make that thread? And why did I choose two weeks ago or whatever it's been to drop out of Cairo school and not a year prior? 
there is nothing that happened to me in that week of Cairo that I said, this was it, right? It was nothing that it was like, this was it. Why did I do that? My girlfriend got offered a phenomenal job in Austin, Texas. And I'd already known that I wanted to do a PhD. I'm working on a lot of projects. Uh, I am involved in a lot of research that I knew that immediately I was actually ready to apply for a PhD this coming cycle. So you apply August for next August. I would have graduated May of 2022. All of my eggs were in the August of 2022 PhD start date basket already. This has been for over a year. I knew that that's what I wanted to do, but I had always planned to finish Cairo school. My girlfriend got that job offer. I emailed the people at UT Austin. They were like, yeah, for everything that you want to do, just come here, do a master's. We'll charge you in-state tuition, right? Mm-hmm. Which is $200 a credit hour. So I can do a full master's in a year and a half, 45 credits for $12,000. Just the one quarter that I dropped out of is 9200 and something dollars. So just that refund that I got there paid for almost all of my master's, right? And I still had four more quarters to do that. So there was a, almost a $40,000 tuition alone saving. And I could live with my girlfriend, soon to be fiance. And I don't have to be away from her. Like it made 100% sense for me. So that's another thing is like people were like, he quit on car. Like, no, I had this great opportunity for something that I would rather be doing. That does not mean I quit Cairo school. I did not quit chiropractic or at least the MSK, conservative MSK. That mm-hmm. is still what I want to be a part of. That is what I'm, I, I'm really grateful for my clinical education that allows me to ask questions that if I would have just done a master's and then a PhD, I would not know what questions need to be asked. I would not know what would be beneficial to clinicians. What, what is the actual constraints of clinicians, right? And that's, I think, is what what a lot of people are like, he just quit on Cairo. No, I quit on I quit Cairo school because my girlfriend got a great opportunity and I got to save sixty thousand dollars by by going somewhere and advancing my career in ways that I thought were more helpful. But you were still going to hopefully see my name involved with chiropractic or at least a conservative MSK for the next twenty to thirty years. And that is kind of the plan. There's a difference there, I think, between what people portrayed what I was quitting like he didn't want to fix chiropractic no i'm still very much involved Mm. just from a research policy standpoint i appreciate you sharing that because i think i i noticed this with myself for sure you know i've i don't think i've said this on the podcast and it's not something that i try to hide but i don't feel like i'm a great clinician i don't feel like my skill is being with patients but i still love chiropractic and so i've kind of felt a little bit uh, conflicted there. And, you know, we, we look at people who are chiropractors and then go into research full time. And I don't hear many people complaining about that right. and saying that they gave up on chiropractic. Um, and so, again, I just wanted to kind of separate those two things that it sounds like you've found what your personal fit is. Um, but then you also were open about some of the concerns and the, the issues you have with the chiropractic education system, which by the way, I was reading the book by Scott Haldeman and he wrote a letter to the NBCE in the seventies about the problems with, uh, with the testing at the time, at least. And every single one of those points is still valid today. And so I think this is something that's been going on for a long time. 
Right. And um, I, I think the points that I tried to make are, like I said, a beyond chiropractic, especially like the tuition costs and stuff like that. Like that happened in law schools. Like right now, being a lawyer is not what it was 20 years ago. Why? Because they put out so many lawyers and costs of law school kept continuing to go up that unless you go to a certain law school, it's actually not a good return on investment to go to law school right now. Right. And that is not the only profession. That is the same thing that's happening in Cairo. And if nobody does anything, that'll be a bigger harm than me making a viral Twitter thread about it mm. in the long run to chiropractic. Another thing I notice about you is you seem to have pretty high standards. You know, again, before you even started chiropractic school, you were you were digging up references um, as you talk about the clinical uh, experience and some of the uh, the things that you think could be better. Um, where does that come from? I think I, so I was born in Colombia and I lived here undocumented for about 15 years uh, before I became a citizen and my parents and the same thing. So I really have a personal experience what, what it is to be a quote unquote high social risk person. And that being said, I've never been sick. I've never had any of these problems, but, and I've managed to get myself through undergrad and grad school and all of these things, right? So like I would quote unquote, be the exception. What I want is for people that, for me to not be the exception anymore, right? For me to be the standard. And and in order for that, I felt, I fell in love with MSK care. And I, that's how I really got involved in social determinants of health. And what I'm seeing is that a lot of our, a lot of our outcomes and a lot of the things that happen to people are determined by things outside of the clinic, Right. And right. I don't have an answer for clinicians there. And that's what really drove me to, I was like, why can't I find this answer? Like, why is there not? And there's not, there's currently not an answer. I've asked, I've had a lot of conversations about this with a lot of people way smarter than me and there's not. And I think that's always driven me is that like, I wanted to, at first I wanted to be the exception. Like I didn't want to be just a kid that came here and like, didn't make anything of himself. And now I want to be able to give the opportunities that I've been been able to have, which was, you know, go to undergrad, go to grad school, continue grad school, do all of these things. I want everybody to have that opportunity. And for, for that, I think the profession and just people in general need to want uh, everybody to be able to have the same opportunities. And we need to expect higher of, of ourselves in whatever we're doing. And so that was always what kind of drove me that's great. Well, I want to. We're pushing an hour here, but I do want to talk a little bit about uh, what Tyler Cohen calls your production function. So this is kind of your approach to finding research and and perhaps understanding it, maybe writing about it. You have published in a peer-reviewed journal as well. So I'm curious, what's your process look like when you come across a paper, or or if you want to find a paper? Do you use any special tools or techniques to collect and to read and study? So my, this is something that I really struggle with uh, because people ask me about this a lot. Uh, even in, in school, I was always kind of known as the kid that read a lot of research. And it, I think there's a difference between the amount of research that clinicians slash students need to read and the amount of research that somebody that like me that wants to do a PhD needs to read. Uh so what I try to do when somebody asks me is to start with the really, really big papers. Usually they'll, 
they'll tell you to start with systematic reviews. I would even go uh, better than that. Like everybody that's going to listen to this is going to be a Cairo. If you haven't read a paper, start with the Lancet's low back pain series. You know, that that is the, the, the best back pain papers that we've had in 20 years and just start reading those references. And what happens is you just read a paper a day and it's conclusions just all start being the same. And you start kind of seeing the trend of the literature. And when you do that, then you can get a little more involved into statistics and how to be able to tell a good paper versus a bad paper. Uh, Some of that can be taught through YouTube. Uh, There's a lot of like free YouTube courses that can teach you how to read a paper. Uh, But before even doing any of that, before you're like, I want to be able to tell you what is a bad paper, see what kind of the literature out there is on that large scale, right? Those systematic reviews, uh, whatever you're interested in, go read who is the, the, the expert in the world of that. Go read two or three of his papers, or her papers, right? Like if you're in chiropractic, you need to know Jan Hartwigen's name. You need to read his papers. The man is literally the number one chiropractic researcher in the last 30 years. Read his papers and then you'll know what the answer kind of should be for a question after a while. And then you can start getting into a little more nuance of like sample size and power analysis and differences between minimal and clinical, uh, clinical important difference and, or statistical important difference. Like those things are important, but if you don't know the research, it's, they're, they're less important. I think is what what I I try to get to start at the systematic reviews and just go and Google uh, the, the largest expert in whatever field you're interested in and read them. And then you'll be able to tell more about what the answers are supposed to be. And you'll, then you'll, if you want to, you can get more involved in the statistics, but I don't even think you need that. So the Lancet, uh, Jan Hartvigsen, is there one more paper or, or a series of papers you might recommend maybe around social determinants of health, how to understand what that is and what that means? So social determinants of health, then if we're going to stick with MSK, the, the one that I would, the two that I would recommend are one by Zach Rethorn and Chad Cook. Uh, the reason I recommend that is because it is two pages. So it's an editorial on JOSPT and it's called uh, Social Determinants of Health. If they're so important, why aren't we measuring them? And he breaks down in two pages everything about what you need to know about social determinants of health and has 10, they're, they're limited to 10 citations. So you uh-huh. have 10 references there for an editorial that completely give you an, and what you should know a lot, at least about it. And then the second paper that I would recommend uh, on social determinants of health was actually published by Laura Mosley. He was the last author. Uh, Emma Corinne, I think is her name, and that's low back pain and the social determinants of health. That one's a systematic review. Uh, the reason that I say read that second is because since it's a systematic review and not an editorial, it's a little more dense. Mm-hmm. So I would say get your feet wet with the editorial. And this is exactly why I say get your feet wet with the the Lancet, because it's a narrative review by they grabbed literally the top low back pain experts in the world and Lancet and came to three papers on it. It's a narrative review. So it's really easy. It's not stats heavy. It's not methods heavy. 
and it gives you an overview. Same thing with the editorial and social determinants. And then you then get into the systematic review that was published, I think, two years ago or last year. I think it's 2020. Emma Cran and Lauren Mosley, Social Determinants of Health and Low Back Pain. And once you read that, welcome to the rabbit hole. Just chase down this, <laughs> those citations on those on that systematic review. It is, it'll make you really struggle uh, mentally with, as a clinician, like, how can I do something about this? Do you prefer digital or paper? I prefer digital. I use uh, Mendeley. Okay. Do you schedule time to read or how do you, how do you read so much? I mean, you've mentioned in, again, in the, uh, another podcast, like you've read thousand papers, you mentioned all these textbooks that you've read. Um, I think I'm fairly well read, but I don't even come close to, <laughs> to having the numbers. How do you make time for it? I would say it's one of those things that just like you made time to learn how to adjust to learn these techniques, it is just as important for you to know what the evidence says about the things that you commonly treat, both diagnosis and and treatment wise. So that is just as important as whatever treatment you are using or whatever technique. So exactly how you made time as a student or as a clinician to go out of your way to be a better adjuster, rehabber, whatever you want to call it, diagnostician, you need to do the exact same thing for research. For me personally, it's, hey, I'm going to read one paper a day, whether it's an editorial or a 10-page systematic review. And the cool thing about it is the more you read, the less you need to read, like, let's say the introduction. The introduction is just setting up for the paper. I have read so many low back pain papers. I know that low back pain is the number one cause of the disease. I know that that's what you're going to say in the first sentence. And I know that you're going to cite Jan's Lancet paper. I do not need to read the introduction anymore, right? Like I'm going straight to the, the certain part of the methods that I care about and to the review, to the results and the conclusion. And so the better you get at it, the less time consuming it'll become. But I try to keep at one paper uh, every working day, let's say. Like if you read four four papers, and even if it's an auditorial, it could be a two-page editorial that take you 10 minutes. But hey, they add up at the end of the year. And then after your 30-year career, you are going to be very, very well read. Do you have a method of taking notes, of, um, of saving these things? I, mean, I, I talked to or I, I hear a lot of people speak where I talk with them and they can just like cite papers <laughs> off their yeah. head. I have no idea how they do that. Greg um, great but how that. do you, yeah. How do you synthesize this? So, uh, well, you can't do that. And like somebody can't do that unless you've read thousands of papers. Uh, I can do some of that stuff with manual therapy because that's what I've most read out on. That's why they, they kind of come to me. Uh, but it's just like anything else. Like if you're interested in sports, right? Like you, if if you really like baseball, you can name who won, you know, the whatever the the World Series in 1989, and you can tell me exactly. Like it's the same exact thing, right? The more you're involved in it, the easier it becomes, and stuff just kind of starts popping up. But this is the exact same way. I personally, I use Mendeley. Um, and what I do is I save it. I make my little folder. So I have like a low back pain folder, a manual therapy folder, mm-hmm. and I put them in there. And it has like a little highlighter machine. You can also do notes and stuff like that. Is that something you like to do? So I have, I can right now, I think I have 1,400 to 1,500 papers on my phone right now, all in little folders that I know where to look for them if I ever need uh, to, to like reference them or whatever. That's how I do it. And after a while, it's just like 
it's just like a sports team. Like you, so people can name all 22 players on offense and defense of an NFL team. You can say that Kotrick in 2019 had a paper on palpation. <laughs> like, <laughs> see, I can't do either of those. So maybe it's just, maybe well, I just yeah. don't have that kind of memory. Um, but no, I, I use papers, which is very similar to Mendeley. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard um, that one too. And do the same thing. So I'm always curious about, about how people use different apps and things. And do you write much? I mean, you've been published. That came out, what, about a year ago? Yeah, so, yeah, that was the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and so, yeah, now I write a lot because I am involved in a couple of papers. Uh, it is very hard to, to learn academic writing. It is not the same thing as regular writing. Uh, I'm having uh, a lot of uh, imposter syndrome going into that. But I, I do write a lot. I write every day um, because I'm involved in about four or five papers. Uh, and since I'm not a stats wizard, what I do offer these projects is I'm a well-read B I have a lot more time than most professors. So I have a lot more time to write or do kind of the busy work that they don't. So that is what I offer these projects is the time and the effort and not maybe the, the stats work that they would get maybe from a PhD student or a postdoc. Uh, so yeah, I spend a lot of time writing. Do you have a personal blog? I do not. I do not. Um, I'm hoping to start uh, working with Christine Gertz. Uh, we, we've talked about me taking kind of over her blog. So that, see, I haven't left chiropractic. See, working with Christine Gertz. <laughs> haven't left chiropractic, I promise. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, Geronimo, it's been uh, fun chatting, and it's been good to kind of clarify some of the, the background to this. And, I, and there's certainly much more um, that we could talk about, um, but I appreciate you taking the time and sharing your experience. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I think this is really helpful for people to kind of see that you we're allowed to say something is wrong and still care about something, right? You're allowed yeah. to, to be like, hey, my kid isn't doing that great, but I still love my kid. <laughs> Like that's how I kind of uh, have looked at a conservative MSK in general. You can be a diehard uh, sports fan and still hate your team when they don't right. perform well. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> any, uh, any advice or words of wisdom to uh, let's say prospective chiropractic, even PT students who are thinking about getting into the profession and, you know, maybe you're having some, some thoughts of hesitation. What would you recommend to them? I would recommend reaching out to the people that they want to emulate. Uh, I did this a lot when I was at their, like at the, at the stage of entering chiropractic school and they all are willing to jump on a call, talk. Uh, I am, if somebody wants to reach out to me personally, I find me on Twitter, find me on Instagram. I am always down. I was actually just on a call prior to this. Somebody's like, I'm having a lot of cognitive dissonance today. Please jump on Sure. I've never met this person in person. Sure. People aren't Kim Kardashian, right? People aren't these, like, <laughs> I hope Greg, Greg Lehman, Greg Lehman isn't Kim Kardashian where he gets so many emails that he'll, you'll never see. He will see your email. He will see your DM. I would suggest email because DM sometimes go to like the certain folders if they don't follow you, whoever it is, whoever it is that you think is doing a great job, reach out to them and they will, they will contact you. I've reached out to everybody both research wise and uh clinic like wanting to emulate some clinicians and every single person has said hey i have the time to jump on a call and i think that's really helpful because 
sometimes the schools or the people that you're currently surrounded with aren't exactly what you, where you want to be as a person. And so the cool thing is that these people are, are, have had this exact same frustrations as you are. You are not the first person to have the frustration or you're not the first person to enter Cairo or PT school. So if you can find somebody that you would want to try to emulate, I would suggest reaching out to them and jumping on a call. If people want to find you, where can they find you on Twitter? Your handle is Jero five G R O five. And then Geronimo, my full name, G E R O. And I am 10 on Instagram. Uh, I'm a lot more active on Twitter in terms of MSK. On Instagram, I just post stories about cool papers that I that I am currently reading and I try to break them down. So if you're into that type of stuff and but you're okay with me once a month posting a picture of me and my girlfriend, there you go. But if you're not, then Twitter is where I would follow. Uh, and just uh, somebody asked me yesterday, actually, it's like, how do I get more involved into like following the right people on Twitter? I don't follow almost anybody on Twitter that I'm not, that is not like some sort of MSK research. So you can very much go and like, click my the 300 people I follow and whatever, depending on what like social determinants and population health is something that really interests me. So you'll see me follow like 120 of those people. If that doesn't interest you, you'll still find like Jan and Derek Griffin and all of Greg Lehman and all these people to follow from my followers um, if you're into MSK. And then from then, I would really recommend Twitter. I think that helped me a tremendous amount seeing these like top tier researchers and clinicians kind of breaking things down and arguing between each other and seeing a lot of the gray yeah. and the nuance right happen right in front of you. Yeah, it's surprising how much of that is on. I think I'm finding more and more research papers on Twitter than I do on yep, even Facebook groups and that type of stuff. Well, Geronimo, thanks so much for joining me on Exploring Chiropractic. I really appreciate it. I, I really appreciate it. You're doing great work, so continue doing this. I think this is really going to help the profession as well, uh, everything that you're doing with the podcast. So I really I really recommend continuing to do this. And I know sometimes it feels like you're screaming into a void and like nobody's <laughs> listening, but but uh, the, people are. People are listening and you're doing good stuff. Well, thank you again for listening to another episode of Exploring Chiropractic. You can follow me at exploring Cairo on all social media and you can follow me personally at Nathan Cashin on Twitter if you enjoyed this episode please do leave a review some feedback on your podcast uh, player of choice on Apple Podcasts Stitcher on Spotify and send me an email as well drop me a tweet I'd love to hear uh, some feedback I do have another episode with Dr. Len Fay coming out in the next few days and if you enjoyed the discussion towards the end there about reading and research and all those different things that Geronimo is uh, interested in, uh, you might like my most recent YouTube videos. So head on over to YouTube and search for Exploring Chiropractic or go to exploringchiropractic.com slash YouTube. And I discuss the books about chiropractic or related to chiropractic that I read last year, as well as a few of the books that I plan to read this year, including Len Fay's biography, uh, Chiropractic Odyssey, which inspired me to reach out to him and to a few other legend chiropractors who I'm going to interview on the podcast. Uh, hopefully Terry Yoakum, Scott Haldeman, uh, Reed Phillips, author of biography of Joseph Jancy, and more. So stay tuned, and we'll see you in another episode of Exploring Chiropractic.